0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us, and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. It's our pleasure to introduce a new member of the Bench Talk team this week, Dr. Trent Garrison, a geologist here in Kentucky. I know from personal experience that Trent has been active in the community for years, and I know that he's very passionate about science communication. So take it away, Trent.
1: Well, hello, Dave and Ashley. First of all, I wanted to thank you for having me on the program uh, just a little bit about myself before I get started. I am Trent Garrison. I did my bachelor's and master's degrees at Eastern Kentucky University. My master's emphasis was groundwater movement. And my Ph.D. I did at UK, University of Kentucky, and in environmental geology, specifically looking at coal fires. And uh, my the, the, the main part of that that I was interested in is looking at groundwater and soil quality around areas of coal fires. Now, some other people have looked at air quality. I looked a little bit at air quality, but that wasn't a a main part of my study. So um, I wanted to give you a little bit of background about coal fires because this is not really something that's well advertised. For example, you know, you don't hear a lot about coal fires on the news, but um, there are coal fires around the world. There are plenty of them. There are thousands around the world, there are hundreds in the United States, just kind of an informal count, there are 30 some in Kentucky, uh, there, are hun- there are over a hundred in Pennsylvania apparently. So some of the ones that are probably better known are Centralia in Pennsylvania, there's Burning Mountain in Australia I believe, and lots and lots in India and China. Now coal fires have been around since we've had plants, so we're going back three, four million years ago. There's a certain type of maceral in coal that is related to coal fires. So we can look at coal, you can dig up a sample of coal in eastern Kentucky and you can see evidence of coal fires going back that long. That, you know, could have started by lightning strikes, forest fires, different different things. But there's also what's referred to as spontaneous combustion, not the type that you hear about in, you know, like these ridiculous shows or anything, but there really is such thing as spontaneous combustion in coal. So... Anyway, there are plenty of coal fires around the world. Just a little bit more general background, in a coal-fired power plant, which is different than than a wild coal fire, in a coal-fired power plant, what you have is complete combustion. So the coal is burned at a very high temperature, and the coal is completely combusted. That leads to basically the only thing coming out of the smokestack is carbon dioxide and water vapor. So that's a, that's a relatively good thing. In the case of a wild coal fire that's unregulated out in the forest in the middle of nowhere, you probably have incomplete combustion. So incomplete combustion can be really bad because it leads to these heavy hydrocarbon formation. When I say hydrocarbon formation, there are basically two groups of hydrocarbons. You can have BTECs, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylenes. And those are the lighter, more volatile ones, and then you can have the PAHs. There are lots and lots of PAHs, hundreds of them, but I think there are 16 that are regulated by the EPA, some of the more toxic ones. So the PAHs are heavier, and uh, some of them can be uh, quite toxic. So we wanted to look at uh, specifically the PAHs in, in soil and water quality. All right. So we looked we looked at coal fires all over, but the, the the two that we focused on were were in Eastern Kentucky. One was in Perry County referred to as the Lots Creek coal fire, and the other one was in Knott County and referred to as the Truman Shepherd fire. Now, the long story short here and was a bit of a surprise to me is the fact that we did not find any groundwater contamination at any of these sites. We looked at groundwater and we looked at surface water contamination. We did not see any in the creek. We didn't see any in the ditch. We didn't see any in the, mon- the neighbor's monitoring wells. That had, that had a proven connection to the coal fires. Uh, there's a long, interesting story there of the federal government coming in, two thousand. I believe it was 2009, 2010. They tried to excavate the fire at the, at the Truman Shepherd location. Uh, they, first, they originally tried to inject this foam, and it didn't work, uh, this uh, fire-suppressing foam. That's used by firefighters. And they eventually tried to excavate it by spending well over $100,000 to excavate the side of this mountain to try to excavate the fire. They thought that worked, but the fire eventually came back. So neither one of those things worked. Some of the neighbors noticed that foam started coming out of their wells. (laughs) So there was a connection there between the actual... Where they injected the foam and in the, the neighbors' wells, that was a proven connection. But even in that case, we still didn't see any groundwater contamination. So that engendered us to uh, to go back and look at the soil quality. So at these different locations, so what we found with regard to soil quality was a quite a different story. We found soil contamination at one location in very high numbers. And no soil basically no soil contamination, very, very low levels anyway. And the other location. So the, the Perry County location, the Lots Creek coal fire, is on top of the mountain, lots of leaves, lots of organic material, lots of organic matter, um an organic soil horizon, versus the one in Knott County at the Truman Shepherd fire, which was excavated. So you we did not have a lot of organic matter. At that fire, and that's important, something I'll come back to if I have time. So, at the Lott's Creek fire, the one on top of the mountain with lots of organic material around it, we found levels of PAHs as high as 7,000 times higher than allowable levels, as directed by the EPA. At the Truman Shepherd fire, the one in Knott County, we found basically no levels of contamination. So we found that to be really interesting, we collected samples as we moved away from the fire pit, and we noticed that it dropped off precipitously. So right around the vent at the Lotz Creek location, the levels were really high, but if you go away just 30 feet, basically you're, going, you're getting back down to below allowable levels. So we found that to be really interesting. So high levels of soil at one fire, no levels of soil or groundwater at the other fire. And what, it, what we think it comes back to is the, the amount of organic material because it can adsorb onto those carbon molecules. Okay, so the research that I did is not totally brand new, but it hasn't been done in a very long time looking at soil and water quality with regard to coal fires. What I mean by that specifically is Back in the 70s and early 80s, there was a big push for coal gasification. And there were lots of people in different places around the world who did studies on, you know, is it feasible to burn coal underground, to burn it in situ, to burn it in place, to to create power. Just like you would do in a coal-fired power plant, but doing it underground. So, along with those studies, you had some people who did some environmental studies and they actually looked at groundwater contamination and soil contamination and they found some levels of, of such. And there's a huge summary paper. If anyone's interested, I can send it. It's, it's available online. Uh, but since then really nobody had looked at that because that kind of went down the tubes. Nobody was looking at coal gasification as a source of energy for a long time. Uh, and then the study of coal fires just kind of popped up. Maybe, Ten years ago, people started becoming more interested in that. Most of the research, as I mentioned earlier, had been focused around air quality. So, you know, the greenhouse gases that's, that, that, that are coming out of coal-fired power plants, yes, we, we know about that. That's well studied. But what about greenhouse gases, you know, carbon dioxide, methane, and so forth? What about those greenhouse gases coming out of coal-fired vents? That's something I think is really interesting. That's something that the Center for Applied Energy Research at UK and other organizations around the world have started looking at. Even the IPCC mentioned it recently. What's been concluded in scientific papers that it's, when trying to quantify it, it's really difficult, but they've come up with somewhere between maybe 1% and 5% of the greenhouse gases that we currently have in the atmosphere are the result of these wild burning coal fires. So there's more. There's plenty more information out there if you want to read about that. That's not what I specifically looked at in my studies. But uh, this is just kind of a preliminary study of looking at wild coal fires and the effects on the environment, specifically soil and water. And I'm hoping that this will cause other people to get more interested in this, and I'm hoping to get more funding <laughs> so I can do this type of research in the future and look at other fires and see if the research that we did finding high levels of PAHs in or the organic soil layer is similar to what we would find if we looked in other places around the world. Because, like I said, nobody's really done this in a, in a very long time, especially with regard to wild coal fires. So, um, I'm happy, if anyone wants to contact me, I'm happy to answer any questions, if, if folks have any questions about this. Otherwise... That is it for me, and thank you for having me on.
0: Here's some data you need to know. Last year in Louisville, there were 107 people murdered. 107 men, women, and children were murdered in Louisville last year. Not only is that an amazing figure, but it's also just unacceptable. What's even worse than the 107 murders in 2017 in Louisville were the number of murders the year before, 2016. It was 116 murders then. I thought it was pretty pathetic when Mayor Fisher and the Louisville police chief bragged about the drop in murders from 2016 to 2017. It dropped from 116 to 107. The numbers from both of those years are outrageous, unacceptable, and should shock all of us. In 2017, Louisville, Kentucky was ranked the 11th deadliest city in the United States, and Louisville, Kentucky is the ninth fastest rising violent city in the country. Number 9. So far as of July 2018, there's been 43 murders in Louisville, Kentucky. Although those are better statistics than the last couple years, it still looks like a bad year. I want to tell you about a report that was published by John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City in October of 2017. These researchers published an update on an anti-violence program that had been initiated in New York City in 2010. This John Jay College report was written by a group of researchers who had expertise in criminal justice and urban studies. The title of the report is Denormalizing Violence, and it basically evaluates the effectiveness of this anti-violence program that was undertaken in two places, South Bronx and Brooklyn. The program was called Cure Violence. The reason this report is important is because here in Louisville, Kentucky, our mayor, Greg Fisher is currently seeking to insert $1.9 million into the 2018-2019 Louisville Metro budget to establish a Cure Violence program here in Louisville. So let's take a look at how this program worked in New York City so we have a better idea of what to expect here in Kentucky. The Cure Violence program started in New York City back in 2010 with funding from the U.S. Department of Justice There are actually 18 different cure violence programs within New York City, but this John Jay College report focused on only two of them. One of them was called Man Up in Brooklyn, and the other one was called Save Our Streets in South Bronx. The researchers compared what happened in these two neighborhoods with what happened in nearby neighborhoods that did not have these cure violence programs. For the non-experimental controls, they chose East Harlem, and Flatbush for comparison. This report uses data gathered between the years 2012 and 2016. Keep in mind that the program started in 2010, so they waited a couple years for the program to get going and then evaluated it for a four-year period. First, I'll describe the Man Up program in East New York, Brooklyn. Most of the staff members in this program were middle-aged men who actually lived in the neighborhood they were working in, about half of the staff had belonged to a street gang or crew in the past, or had been incarcerated in the past, and the majority of the staff had been involved in community work or activism in the past. So these staff members in the Man Up program in in, in Brooklyn spent a lot of time just walking the streets, interacting with neighbors, keeping up with street lore, and any emerging rumors about the possibility of future violence. On average, these staff members were spending 48 hours a month, so two or three hours per day, just walking around the streets. It was determined that about 80% of the males between the ages of 18 and 30 in East New York, where Brooklyn is, 80% of them recognized at least one member of Man Up. And of the young men in the neighborhood who did have contact with Man Up staff members, they had on average 4.5 contacts per month, so pretty frequent contact. The program in South Bronx, similar to this, was called Save Our Streets, and the Save Our Streets program had a similar makeup as the Man Up program. Now, both of these programs were small parts of a larger program called Cure Violence, and that's the program that the John Jay College researchers are investigating. Cure Violence was founded by a former official in the World Health Organization. This was back in 1995. This person was named... Dr. Gary Slutkin, and Dr. Slutkin was a professor of epidemiology and global health at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So the approach that Dr. Slutkin took was to use the same methods and strategies that are used to control the spread of disease. After all, Slutkin was an epidemiologist. Cure Violence is based on the idea that violence acts like a contagious disease. It spreads from person to person as people adopt the behaviors that they observe in family members and friends and peers. The Cure Violence program works by detecting and interrupting conflicts, by identifying and treating the highest-risk individuals, and by changing social norms. Here's the path that Cure Violence takes, and I'm quoting here. First step, assess the violence problem and in, in the community. So this would involve identifying situations that are likely to result in violent acts like revenge due to a prior shooting. It would be looking to group conflicts and territory disputes and formation of new groups and major arrests, anniversaries of shootings, release of key individuals from incarceration, and ongoing conflicts. The second step for the Cure Violence program is to engage community leaders. Third, identify appropriate Community partners. Four, identify appropriate hospital response partners so that program staff can counsel injured patients as well as their family and friends who may be planning to retaliate for a violent event. Fifth, they re examine their data. Six, they hire and train credible workers who can mediate conflicts using the following techniques creating cognitive dissonance about violence. So the way they do that is by challenging people with new information or attitudes that contradict their held beliefs and values. Another technique they use is called derailing. Derailing is a psychological technique where there's a sudden and unexpected change of topic in a normal conversation. So it kind of breaks the logical flow of a speech. The idea of that is to basically change the train of thought of a person. Some other techniques that these staff members will use is changing the way people think about situations, changing the decision that people make, providing information, buying time, negotiating a compromise. So the average caseworker in Cure Violence has 10 or 12 people that they are most focused on. It would be those people who are at highest risk of committing violence, and they meet with them several times a week and develop a relationship with them. Another important thing that these trained Cure Violence workers will do is to provide technical assistance to community members. So staff members help participants with issues like getting education, jobs, criminal justice issues, mental health problems, problems with alcohol, drugs, trauma, reentry from incarceration, things like that. So that's a brief description of the Cure Violence program that's being used in New York City. How did they assess this program? Well, here's the kind of things they measured. First of all, how many shootings were there every month? How many gun injuries were there that required medical attention? And this is different than the number of shootings because one shooting could hurt many, many people. They also evaluated the success of this program by just talking to young people who are between the ages of 18 and 30 and just asking them about the likelihood of them using violence, either in petty conflicts, like with a romantic partner, as well as serious disputes, like with family, about money or debt, acts of disrespect, things like that. In other words, how did the Cure Violence program change people's attitudes about violence? So in the three-year period of this study, that was 2014, 2015, 2016, gun violence trended downward in both of these cure-violence neighborhoods that they studied. Violence also went down in the experimental control neighborhoods, though, where the cure-violence program was not applied, but violence there didn't drop as much as in the neighborhoods that did have that program. In East New York, where Brooklyn is, the Brooklyn neighborhood, the gun injury rates fell by 50%, whereas the matched comparison neighborhood, which was Flatbush, the gun injuries only dropped 5%. So it dropped 50% in the Cure Violence neighborhood and only 5% in the control. In the South Bronx neighborhood, which was served by the Cure Violence program, there was a 37% drop in gun injuries, whereas there was only a 29% drop in gun injuries in the control neighborhood, which was East Harlem. And while there was a 63% reduction in shooting victimization in the Cure Violence neighborhood of South Bronx, there was only a 17% drop in shooting victimization in East Harlem, which was the control. So in real numbers, this means that gun injuries in the Brooklyn area dropped from 44 per year to 22, And in the Brock's area, it dropped from 35 shootings to 13. That's a pretty big drop in both of these Cure Violence neighborhoods. So the program seems to be working. And on those surveys of young men where the uh, Cure Violence staff people asked them about whether they would use violence in petty disputes like with a romantic partner, the number who supported a violent response dropped by 20% during these three-year period. Then for serious disputes, there was a 33% drop in the reported likelihood of committing violence in those neighborhoods. And that was statistically better than the attitudes in untreated neighborhoods. So the Cure Violence program appears to be working both in terms of people's attitudes about violence and then the actual acts of violence that occur in those neighborhoods. So this particular analysis was only done in New York City, but the Cure Violence model has already been implemented in other places. It's been used in Chicago, Baltimore, San Antonio, New Orleans, Kansas City, Syracuse, and Albany, and maybe in the future Louisville. It's also been implemented internationally, like in Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and South Africa, for instance. It would be interesting to see a larger analysis of the Cure Violence Program. What are the success rates in these other locations? Another question I have is, since this research project only covered three years, what sort of results would we see five years or ten years after initiation of this project? The Cure Violence Program is getting a lot of recognition in the world. A recent... Analysis ranked it number 10 for effectiveness in a 2018 report on the 500 top non-governmental organizations in the world, and it's been in the top 20 NGOs in the world for the last five years. So this is a highly regarded program. I'd like to read a quote by Dr. Slutkin. He's the epidemiologist who founded the Cure Violence model. He says, Violence is contagious. It spreads from one person to another. Cure Violence staff work one-on-one with those most likely to be violent and use their influence to talk them out of it. Communities around the world, Dr. Slutkin says, are understanding that violence is a health issue and that this means we need to implement health approaches. We are working with as many partners and individuals as we can to guide and train them to effectively implement this health approach to preventing violence. That was a quote by Dr. Slutkin. On a side note, I'd like to editorialize a little bit. I I hope that one of those community partners that Slutkin talks about in that quote I just read you is the local police. Louisville Metro Police, for instance. They don't spend much money on training their officers. Last year, they only spent $210,000 in their training program that's for the entire police division that's the salary of a couple people is all it is the Louisville Metro Police Department cut the probationary period for new officers from 24 weeks down to only 16 weeks that's a 33 percent cut at a time when murders are high and while last year we had four people who were shot by police this year 2018 we've already seen five people killed by police and it's still just the summer of 2018. In my opinion, our police need better training. But I'll get off my soapbox now. As I mentioned in the beginning of this story, Mayor Greg Fisher here in Louisville is looking to establish a cure violence program here in Louisville, specifically targeted to northwest Louisville, like the Shawnee neighborhood and Russell neighborhood has been mentioned. After writing this story in July of 2018, I decided to do a little bit of internet searching on this effort to bring the Cure Violence Program to Louisville. And I did find a news report on the WLKY website about a representative from Louisville Metro giving a presentation in March of 2018 about the Cure Violence Program. They gave that presentation to the SCALA group. SCALA stands for the Steering Committee for Action on Louisville's Agenda. SCALA is composed of 70 community leaders that operated in private for almost a year without the general public even being aware of its existence. The public is not really allowed to attend these SCALA meetings, and its membership was kept secret until the media exposed it a little while back. So SCALA is a very mysterious group. David Jones, the founder of SCALA, said he was interested in bringing the Cure Violence program to Louisville, So at least now we know a little bit more about what this Cure Violence program is all about. Based on the report I read from John Jay College, it does seem to work. Even though SCALA is certainly under a lot of public scrutiny, the violence problem in Louisville is unacceptable. I don't know what to think of the involvement of SCALA. Regardless of that, though, we will probably be hearing more about this in the future. Thank you. (music) Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer run, listener supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence based rational analysis. Thank you.